So hello and welcome everyone to our special focus 100 calendar meeting of OA. Today is Wednesday, the 28th of June, and we're delighted to have Melissa C with us. Melissa is from the Mid-Hudson Valley region of New York and now lives just outside of Cornwall, also in New York. She originally came to OA in 1992, but left after getting thin and then returned in 2012. So, Melissa, we would love to hear your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, my name, I'm going to start my timer. So, my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. Um, and um, yeah, I was listening to the intro thinking, yeah, I originally came in my early 20s to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, after having struggled with being a compulsive overeater and, and struggling with obesity on and off throughout my life. And I came um, and I heard, got some information and I thought that information would be enough. I didn't think I required transformation. And I took the information and I worked the program um, as I was able to with just without understanding that this was a spiritual program. I thought it really was a, a diet program with excellent group support. And I lost the weight <clears throat> very quickly because I was in my early 20s and I was properly motivated. And I was given a pretty good food plan that, that eliminated my alcoholic foods. Um, but when I returned, I certainly was not thin, right? Like nobody I've ever met who has this, um, you know, um, comes back victorious, although we all want to, you know, I know that while I was out there struggling, I thought, you know what, I'll lose the weight and come back. <laughs> and like, you know, that that's the craziest thing. What good is a meeting? What good is a program if it's only there for you when you lose the weight, right? We're, we're there. Um, <clears throat> when you are at the bottom of yourself. So I always like to, um, share my photos, especially um, on a meeting where the, where the focus is 100 pounders, because, you know, what I, what I like to call to the attention is that um, this is a program of miracles. You know, this is a program, um, is it floating? Here we go. So, um, and I think I'm very lucky because I have a, um, I want to kind of get to the first picture. It's not really there. Oh. Um, that what we have is a program um, that promises a miraculous um, solution. And so I'm very lucky because I have a visible demonstration of what it means to have an experience with the miraculous. You know, so these are these are two pictures of me. Um, one, I was in the red. I was having a party in my house that day, and I remember um, I was a mess. <laughs> you know, like I could barely brush my hair. My kitchen was a mess. I was a mess, um, and I was somehow gonna, I don't know, put it all together and make a party at my house. And the next one was I was on vacation, and actually in that photo I was abstinent but I was about, mm, or as abstinent as I thought I was, I was maybe a couple of hours away from picking up. Um, and so the smile 
was off my face shortly thereafter. Um, this is me in the middle in the green with my sister and my sister-in-laws. Um, and I just remember in those experiences, I have a wonderfully large, loving family, loud, overbearing, opinionated, um, well-meaning, just like me. And I used to go to these family events. We're always getting together still. The very big family, lots of nieces and nephews, lots of great nieces and nephews, um, kids, you know, just a, a beautiful family. But I could not get through these events without eating and drinking large amounts of alcohol and food. Um, <clears throat> because I showed up to every event with a list of the ways that I felt people did me wrong. <laughs> like, and it would go all the way back from the time I was three, real or imagined, that's how I showed up. And so um, I had to drink and eat a lot to get through those events. Um, and this is, you know, a more recent picture of me and my sister. My sister-in-laws, we got older, <laughs> um, but I don't, and my mom in the middle, and I don't have to go through those events anymore, um, drinking and eating. You know, this is a photo of me with my son when he was, he's 16 now, when he was a baby. I could barely hold him. The size of my body made it so difficult to hold him. And he was very active. I see his face here in this picture. He's looking down because he's ready to escape. He's ready to get down. And um, as much as I wanted him and loved him and still do, um, I was miserable because I, I couldn't keep up with him. He was extremely active and I could barely hold him. And it, was, and it made me miserable to, to know that I was not mothering him the way that I, that I wanted to, the way that I was meant to, because that's what this disease does. So I like these photos side by side because they really are a demonstration of what it means, right? To have an experience with the miraculous. So um, there's the same kid, you know, with me at different points. Um, this is when he's the baby, you know, on New Year's, couldn't, couldn't hold him. That sweater was about the only thing that fit me. And, um, and there's, you know, pictures of me. Um, with him when he's 11, 10 or 11, and then like recently. Um, and these are uh, my mom and myself. What I love about this picture in the gray, where I, I, if you look at my face here, although I was still morbidly obese, I still had a lot of weight to lose. Um, I was recovered. My body just hadn't caught up because it takes part of what I abstained from is diets. That was part of what I came to understand that, that my solution was always a diet and diets were no longer going to be my solution. So it took a while, you know, living in abstinence, following a food plan that was healthy and normal and not extreme and not, you know, and not about losing the weight yesterday, but about trusting God with the results of my physical body and living in an agreement with what abstinence means and these 12 steps. And so in this picture in the gray, I was recovered. Um, and I know it because I remember all that resentment that I felt towards all those same family members was gone. And I remember that day feeling, how could I love my family anymore? Like I just felt like I had fallen in love with all the members of my family. And it was a great way to show up um, at this event. Um, 
And this is pretty, this is me, you know, different hair colors, different hair length, <laughs> but every one of those dresses, by the way, are still in my closet and they still fit me. And that's nothing short of a myth to be able to be, um, you know, and so here's a more recent picture of me wearing one of those dresses, you know, that's, um, that's what it looks like. Uh, this your family pictures side by side. Um, my kids got older, you know, um, me as well. And this is my husband and myself side by side. You know, we, when, when the disease, when I was living in the grip of, of this compulsion, um, we ate out a lot. You would often find pictures of us. All my pictures were of us at restaurants because when the disease is your master, when food is your master, the master tells you what you like to do. And I thought I liked eating out in restaurants. I thought that was how I enjoyed my time. And what I've come to find out is that since I've been, you know, set free, I actually like other things. I like concerts. I like outdoor music festivals. I like to dance. I like to kayak. I like to hike. I like to garden. I like to read. You know, there are other things that I'm interested in besides just food. And that's just one of the most wonderful gifts of living in recovery. And these are some friends of mine that I've made in recovery along the way. Um, this was at the OA birthday party. I love this. I'm sure you recognize some of these beautiful ladies. Um, this program is really a gift. It's given me um, friends and sponsees and fellows and, um, you know, and just a, a wonderful way of living. So I'm going to share, I'm going to stop sharing my photos. I'm going to share my story at this point, um, really delve in. And hopefully, you know, one of the reasons I like to share the photos is usually what happens is um, people lean in a little closer after I share. They, they're like, okay, there's something perhaps here. Um, because pictures, you know, pictures are telling. They're a visible demonstration. It's what I say, a visible demonstration of what it means to have an experience with the miraculous. And so I think it is my obligation to take those pictures out, to share them. And when I meet people face-to-face, -face, you know, when I would go to my face-to-face -face meeting, I had, a, I had those pictures in a, in a little folder in a plastic Ziploc, in a folder. And when I would start to speak, I would pass them around. And I've had some friends that I've made along the way in these rooms who have, you know, who now are a part of the Zoom world. And one of which said, I've held your photos in my hand. I remember, they're real. This is a real experience. You know, this is, and it was done, it was done to me, not by me, you know? Um, and so that's why I like to share them. So here's, you know, here's, here's the deal for me is um, I am pretty sure that I was born with this disease of compulsive overeating, or at least with the strong potential to have become a real compulsive overeater. Um, you know, my earliest memories are food related. They're all food related. And I and I one time said to my husband, who's not a compulsive overeater, he likes food though. He definitely likes to eat, um, but he's, he does not have this. Um, and I know it because like there's, there's like handy and things left over that will rot 
you know, that I have to throw out that they don't even finish in my house. They love it the day they get it. And then they all forget about it, which is mind boggling. But I one time said to my husband that, um, you know, um, all my earliest memories are food related. And I think that's what makes me a compulsive. That's why, how I know I'm a compulsive reader. And he actually corrected me. Um, he said, I don't think that's really it. He said, cause I have a lot of great memories about food. He's like, I remember what my grandmother made. I remember my mother's pasta. I remember, right. And he would, and then, but I saw when he was telling me his stories, he was telling them with delight because his earliest food stories are not painful. And every one of mine are because my food, my earliest food memories are of longing because it was never enough. No matter what I was given, I experienced food as though I was not going to get my fill. And I come from a house of plenty. You know, I was, I was not starved at all. My parents saw quite early on that I reacted to food differently than my siblings and they did their best to help me. You know, my mother was, was a power dieter. She was always managing, controlling and successfully. She was really successful at managing, controlling her weight. So she tried to help me. And so um, I would have said when I was younger, well, they didn't let me eat the way I wanted to. Well, that's because they cared about me. And if I could have eaten the way I wanted to, there'd be nothing left in this house. You know, I mean, that's just the truth. I was a bottomless pit. My, my mom would had a cake. <laughs> I, I really remember this very clearly. I know the cake well. <laughs> I know the cake well. My mother would cut this particular cake. Everybody would get a slice on Friday night. And before my slice was cut, I knew my slice was not going to be enough. Like I was already longing the, for the piece that I didn't even eat yet. And I knew that I needed more than whatever I was gonna get. And so those are the ways that I experienced food. Um, and when you experience food that way, chances are you become morbidly obese. And that was my experience. So I battled with obesity on and off. And I started um, my first diet at 10. I went on about nine or 10. I went on Weight Watchers. My mom, <laughs> my mom put me on Weight Watchers, which was basically what it was. Um, although I was a willing participant, I didn't want to be that. I wanted to lose weight. Um, I didn't want to be a chubby kid. I didn't like that my siblings were teasing me. I'm one of five. They teased me ruthlessly, you know. Um, and that's not why I'm a compulsive overeater. We all teased each other ruthlessly. You know, we teased my brother because my brother couldn't read, <laughs> you know, and, and because I'm sure now looking back, I'm sure he had a learning disability, but we teased him ruthlessly about that. And they teased me ruthlessly because I was fat, right? We, everybody had something. One of my brothers was teased because he was asthmatic and he was always getting an asthma attack wherever we went, you know, but my self-centered mind thought, that I'm the victim of all these people, that they are causing me to be obese because they don't let me eat and they make fun of me. And, you know, so I grew up sneaking food all the time. And, you know, my brother, who's now a grandfather, you know, 60 years old, he's a grandfather. Um, when he was getting married, one of my siblings teased his wife and said, 
you know, make sure um, something about, you know, he hides cookies underneath his bed. And my sister-in-law looked at us like we were crazy. And we all real, I realized my brother hasn't had to do that in years because he doesn't live with me anymore, right? They had no clue that my brother had to hide cookies under his bed because if he didn't, he never got any, right? I would have always eaten them. You know, so I went on my first diet at, at nine or 10 and I lost the weight and I got thin and, um, and I learned about moderation and I learned about points and I learned what it meant to go on a diet and diets became my solution. And so I started dieting at that age. The diet was successful, I was thin. And I remained pretty thin up till uh, my early teen years. And when about the time I was 14 or 15, I went on a, my, another diet. And this time it was an extreme diet because I wanted to get skinny. I was normal. I was about normal weight at that age, um, but I wanted to get very thin. I thought I was fat. I always thought I was fat. Even looking back at pictures when I wasn't fat, I always perceived myself as being fat. That's part of my illness too. I have no sense of what I look like. And now I've learned in recovery, it really doesn't matter what I look like. Having a sense of what I look like doesn't need to be healed. I actually need to think less about what I look like and more about being helpful, right? But back then, all I was concerned about was how I looked. And uh, at that age, I went on a very strict diet, restricted. I starved. I ate nothing, you know, pretty much nothing. And I, you know, I think I was eating like 300 calories a day at one point. I got very, very thin. People were concerned for a minute. And then I came home, really one minute, because I only got painfully thin for one minute. I came home one day and there was something in the freezer and I remember I ate it and that was it. I gained a hundred pounds in high school. I, I, I remembered that I could not get back on that. And, um, you know, and I tried every scheme, every single scheme. I could name them all. I know every diet. I know everything. And I tried some wonderfully conventional, you know, wonderfully smart ways and I tried some insane ways. And what I found out with diets is that um, every single one of them works until the day they don't work and then they don't work again. And that's what my experience was. It's, um, you know, when I graduated from college, I was 280 pounds and I was uh, beside myself in misery. I could not get the job I wanted. I could not get the life I wanted. My friends were getting married. My friends were getting good jobs. My friends were moving on. And I felt like, I felt like I was a loser. And I felt like I didn't want to be a loser. I was a smart girl um, with a college education and, and intelligence. And my parents always told me, you can do anything you put your mind to it. And um, I put my mind to it. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous for the first time. And I was given a food plan, which I worshiped like my religion and my God at that time was abstinence. That it was my only mission was to be abstinent. And so this food plan was exactly what I practiced and it worked actually. I got very, I got thin, I got normal and I got all the things that were on my list of what I wanted a way to deliver. I had a list that OA was gonna deliver me a good job Check, I got the job I wanted, which I've been employed at for now 26 years, so that worked. 
Um, I got the job I wanted. I wanted to meet a man. I wanted to get married. And I got those. I, I was able to get those things as well. Um, and, um, and then on my honeymoon, here's what happened to me. I, there's two stories that explain what happened to me and they both are in more of an alcoholism. Now I'm gonna get to the book, right? You've heard enough of my own like ramblings. Here's, here's what happened to me in the book. It's on page 32. Um, like the victim here, the man of 30, I um, fell victim, which practically every alcoholic has, that long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. But like him, I gathered all my forces, attempted to stop altogether and found that I could not. And then <clears throat> there's the story of Fred. And what happened for him was everything was going great. And this is on page 41. <clears throat> it says here, physically, I felt fine. No pressing problems or worries. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. So here, here I was, I was on my honeymoon. I'd been abstinent. I had a food plan, practiced it, and I felt like now I should be able to eat like normal people. I was on my honeymoon. I, look, I was really happy. Like this was not, I ate because I was unhappy. Mm -mm. I looked around and I thought, well, I'm normal. I look normal. I'm in a bathing suit on the beach, actually in the, in the pool with my husband, like every other normal young honeymooning couple. And I looked around and all those young honeymooning couples were drinking these gorgeous frozen tropical drinks. They looked so pretty, right? With those fancy things in them and the straws and the umbrellas. And I was like, I ought to be able to have this. And basically it's ice cream in a glass with a little alcohol. Um, and I had it. And it was like, you sort of marked the day in a book because the rest of the honeymoon, I did not participate in excursions happily. I participated in the buffet. I participated in the swim up bar. I participated in drinking. I drank a lot on my honeymoon. Um, and I didn't feel powerless there because I didn't want to stop. I actually was enjoying myself. It seemed fun at the time, but none of the clothes fit me by the time the honeymoon was ending. And you know, when I tell people that, people who are normal, they're like, wait a second. Like, how is that possible? In a week, nothing fit you? Well, I don't gain three pounds in a week, I, I gain almost 20. I gain 15 to 20 pounds. I mean, I do it just like that. I don't eat like a normal person. And so no, nothing fit me. And what was crushing was, but when I came home from that honeymoon, I could not get back on that food plan. Impossible. I tried everything, um, you know, and it's humiliating and it's painful. And just the same way I gained that 100 pounds in high school, I did it again in my early marriage. I did it again. And I, you know, and it was crushing. Um, and here I was, right? I had that list of all the things I wanted to accomplish and none of that could keep me sober. Job or no job, wife or no wife, husband or no husband. We simply cannot get well 
without the presence of God. It's got to be a relationship with God, which I had no interest or desire for at that point. I really thought that I was God. I thought I could make this happen. You know, and it went on like this for many years, up and down and up and down and up and down. And I wound up, you know, having children, loving my children. I would lay in bed at night. You know, the pain of my morbid obesity, certain that I was going to die as a result of, of my weight. I really felt it. Um, <clears throat> and I had some bursts of recovery in, in that time. I would come to OA. I would try again, but I always wanted to do it my way. I never wanted to fully surrender. I never wanted to fully admit defeat. Um, I thought that I ought to be able to do the job on my own. And then what happened to me was um, the food stopped working. And that was such a miracle that I, I started experiencing panic attacks, which I, I'm a person who, who, who even in my disease has felt pretty comfortable in front of other people, although not comfortable with myself, but not, I've traveled, I've been able to drive cross country. I've been able to do lots of things. I was never riddled with fear, but I started having panic attacks and the food stopped working. I couldn't get to zero. And my last binge, I, I ate until my mouth bled. That was my truth. My, my mouth was bleeding. And what happened for me is on page 25. The great fact is just this and nothing else, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. It goes on to say that if you've passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid, you have but two alternatives, only two choices. One is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other is to accept spiritual help. And what I say happened for me is I felt like there was always two doors for me. And I was always standing in the hallway between two doors. One was the food and I had to eat in a way. So basically I was walking around in a coma. I had to eat that way that I could not even feel like I was alive because that's how much pain I was in. And the other one was to accept spiritual help. And then the great, wonderful thing for me, how do I explain what step one means? Step one for me meant that the floor beneath me dropped. There was no hallway anymore. I had to choose one of those alternatives. And for me, thank God, it was a spiritual solution, which is what this program is. It was about forming my own relationship with God, with the God of my non-understanding, which is really what it was, that I did not need to understand. I did not need to have an intellectual experience. I needed to have a transformative experience. I needed to surrender my thinking, what I wanted, and give it all over to this program first so that I could have a relationship with God.
Um, you know, so step one is more than just admitting that I have a problem with food and specific types of food. Step one means that I embrace, there's a very specific concept that's in the doctor's opinion. And it comes at the end of the explanation about the allergy, which I understood from the time I was a little girl and I ate that cake, I knew what it meant to have an allergy to food. But at the end of it, it says that this phenomenon, as we've suggested, might be the manifestation of an allergy and that this differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. So step one means that I absolutely accept and embrace the fact that I am distinct, that I am different from other people, that I am not one of those honeymooning couples on the beach. And I might look like one of them today, but I am, make no mistake, I am nothing like those people. I am different. So step two, that's my step one. Step two says, form your own conception. You know, and I wasn't too interested in God for a long time. I really thought I was too smart. And I had, you know, I had my own experiences, my own painful experiences, which led me to believe that this God is not a God that I trust very much. And, and really what I found out was because I had a plan and God didn't follow it. And therefore I said, he must not exist because my plan was not put forth. And, you know, what I can say is that um, we all have plans and some of them sound really reasonable and lovely. My plans were good. You know, my plans were loving, wonderful plans. My plans included no loss, no pain, no death, <laughs> you know, and life did not present me with that. Life presented me with life. And life includes tragedy and many of us experience tragedy. And what I found out is that does not mean that God did not exist. What that meant was that it was up to me to look for the ways that God did show up because after all, I was still here, right? Despite all the pain, despite all my losses, I was still living and I still had hope. I still wanted something. I still wanted this. You know, step three is um, I realized that I was suffering from know-it-all syndrome. And I'm probably going to leave it right here with this because I realized that I'm got like 20 seconds left. Step three meant that I was going to fire myself, that I was not going to be in control anymore, that I was going to be governed by a new employer, by a loving God. And what I say is I joined God's team. I said, you know what? I'm going to surrender my thoughts. I'm going to surrender my wants my wants, and I'm going to ask that God that you replace my thoughts with your thoughts, that you replace my wants with your wants, and I'll give it all over to the care and protection of you. And what happened at that point, and I'll just end with this, is that once I did that, I sincerely made that decision, I got better. And that can happen for each and every one of us. And with that, I'll pass.